This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. Hello and welcome to Exvangelical, a show exploring the world inside and outside the evangelical subculture. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. My guest this week is Peterson Toscano. Peterson has an incredible story that includes over a, spending over a decade in gay conversion therapy, which then led to a life of advocacy for gay rights and human rights through storytelling, comedy, acting, and biblical scholarship. In our conversation, Peter shares some examples of gender nonconforming people in the Bible that will totally rock your socks off. I mean, you will actually hear me fail to adequately recover from one of them, and Peter graciously manages the segue himself as I am dumbstruck by this new perspective on a common story. In the final part of of the conversation, we also talk about Peterson's climate advocacy as well. It's a great conversation, and we'll get to it soon. Now, just so you know, if the audio sounds a bit off in this episode, I apologize. I was suffering from a really terrible case of tinnitus and other ear problems while I was editing it. As always, you can follow me on Twitter at BRChastain, but more importantly, you can follow the show across the internet. Just search for at Pod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. I've also begun using a new app called Anchor. The elevator pitch for Anchor is this. Just imagine Snapchat or Instagram stories for audio. The audio disappears after just 24 hours. I'm super excited about this because it'll allow me to talk to y'all throughout the week about newsworthy, buzzworthy things that may be old news before the next podcast drops, but would still be good to talk about, as well as share clips from older shows in the archive and enable a conversation around these things. It also has a really cool call-in feature, which... Uh, I don't know. It sounds kind of silly saying it like that. Ooh, Collins! Like, but it's it's just like talk radio, which is pretty cool. It's a feature that I think the X community could really use. By downloading the app and following at Pod on Anchor, you'll find a call-in option so that you can share your thoughts on this week's episode, a prior episode, or whatever, and get them played on the station. I encourage you all to call in and let your voices be heard. And you can tell me what you think of the show. You can also let other people hear your perspective, too. And since the content disappears from record after 24 hours, you can feel free to be honest knowing that it won't be archived. So if you've ever felt like you wanted to share part of your story but didn't necessarily want to do a, quote, official interview with me, this is a great way to do so. As always, you can support the show via Patreon at patreon.com slash exvangelicalpod. Thank you very much to Nathan and Dan for your recent support. Becoming a patron costs as little as a dollar a month and gets you access to the private Exvangelical Facebook group, and there are even more rewards at higher pledge levels. Again, you can learn more about becoming a patron at patreon.com slash exvangelicalpod. And please go to the iTunes store. I know it sucks to open iTunes um, because it's a beast of software. It slows down your computer. But if you could go to iTunes either on your phone, if you have an iPhone, or on your Mac, or on your PC, and rate and review the show, it really helps boost the show and it helps more people find the show. My thank you very much to Joy, the artist, and DPK for your recent review. All right, now let's get to the conversation with Peterson Toscano.
Hey everybody, welcome back to Exvangelical. I have with me this week Peterson Toscano. He is a Bible scholar, a climate activist, a performance artist, a podcaster, and much more. I'm really happy to have him on. Welcome to the show, Peterson. Hey, it's super to be here. <laughs> uh, thanks for reaching out. I'm really glad we were able, we're able to talk. Um, so I'm going to borrow uh, a technique from Liz Gilbert with my first question, which is to really really to um, start in the middle and work both ways. And um, one, one of the things you're known for, you've been uh, publishing and, and doing a, a, a lot of things in the public space for a while. And one of the things you're most known for is talking about uh, your experience in ex-gay ex programs or, quote, ministries, sometimes referred to as um, reparative therapy. So my first question really is what um, what was your upbringing like that sort of led you to and into those into those programs more generally let's start with sort of what your upbringing was and then work towards that particular part of your experience i grew up in new york state right outside of new york city in an italian american working class catholic family and in a way looking at that you would think well how on earth did you get caught up in evangelicalism and the ex-gay movement and I think it was because it was a perfect storm. Uh, when I was a kid, there had been like this sort of sexual revolution of the 70s. And then in the 80s, things just changed dramatically. Ronald Reagan came to power and you had the HIV AIDS crisis and you had really strong voices speaking out against gay people. Focus on the family. You had the moral majority. And I was like in this weird soup, although my family was fairly, you know, liberal as things go, they weren't in any way like conservative Christians. I got it in my head that it was incredibly dangerous to be gay and that I would be a lot more valuable if I were straight. And, and it's not like my parents said anything bad about gay people. They just never said anything good about them either. And so I just assumed they agreed with everybody else that there's something wrong with being gay. And so by my teen years, I felt I had a problem that needed to be solved. I had a, an issue that needed to be taken care of, and that was being gay. And that's when I began to pray and seek God for solutions. And that's when I got tangled up with the evangelicals <laughs> so that that entanglement um did that start in like a, a local youth group or something like that what was the sort of entry point from this catholic um working class background into <laughs> evangelical world of the 80s and 90s which um as you said was very very form formative and very influenced by people like jim dobson and focus and all those people <laughs> so how'd you get into that well, it was also a time when there was sort of an explosion of evangelism. And I think there were like different movements that were happening in fundamentalist and evangelical churches. It was also about the time when there were a lot of these books coming about, about end times. Oh, so yeah. People, like, sure. there was like, there was this, <laughs> it was just this weird time in history. And in my Catholic youth organization group, these Protestant women came to do a little teaching. We were very liberal Catholics. We're like, whatever, Protestant, Catholic, we don't care. And so they came and um, they just gave a very simple presentation about Jesus and the Romans road. And would you like to accept Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? And I was just at this weird, ripe place and dissatisfied with the Catholic Church and feeling like I wanted something more. And these women, they just sort of represented 
I don't know normalcy. They just seem very normal. And and I grew up and I grew up in a weird family in that my parents owned a restaurant. So I grew up in this restaurant and bar. And so my family just felt so chaotic in a way. And these were like normal 1950s families. And I was like, I want that. And of course, I wanted to be straight. And I wanted to be closer to God. And so these women, they opened up their homes to me. And they were so excited. Oh my gosh, when they found out that I wanted to accept Jesus, it was like their biggest catch (laughs) ever. And then when they found out I was gay, it was like the big one. It was like the big catch. And they said, you need to talk to the pastor. And, you know, as a teenager, just getting all that attention just just meant the world to me. Like, you know, because they kept on saying just how special I was and all that stuff that, you know, that people are so often longing to hear. And yeah. um, and that I was able to be open about my struggles with being gay and they didn't like recoil. Of course, they had another hope was that they would save me completely and that I would no longer be gay. But at the time, I just was like, wow, I just got that off my chest. That feels really great. And then they were like, yeah, and we can help you because the Bible says, if any man be in Christ Jesus, he's a new creature. The old is gone. Behold, all things have been made new. And that felt so powerful to me Mm -hmm. because I felt very old, even as a young person. And it's something that I don't talk about a lot, but I think a lot of it had to do with some childhood incidents where I had experienced some sexual abuse uh, from a much older boy. And so when they were talking about, and how later on, how the ex-gay people would talk about how, you know, people are sexually broken and they carry all this shame, that made sense to me. Unfortunately, they didn't know the first thing about sexual abuse and they confused it all with being gay and they were offering me a cure for the wrong thing um, while totally discounting the real thing I needed help with. Wow. That's, that's a difficult burden for a young person to have. Yeah. And I think that's partly why I was just so like, um, moved when they were like, they just seemed like such clean, wholesome people. And as someone who survived abuse, I just felt so dirty and, and that they, you know, and so they were representing this part of God that like, you know, come as you are sort of thing. But of course it came with a condition. You just can't stay that way. You have (laughs) to, you have to become somebody else in order to be really accepted. Yeah. Was there anyone in your family or other sorts of social circles that wasn't part of this church or these women that were aware of the abuse? Or was that something that, and were were these women even aware of it either? Um, no, no, I didn't tell them. I didn't tell anyone. You know, I think it's really hard when when anyone, of course, experiences abuse. But I think it's particularly hard for boys in our society. Uh, and... At that time, of course, people were confusing things and saying, well, people become gay because they were abused, which is not true. Right. I mean, lots of straight guys have been abused and have never been able to to talk to anybody about that. And so it, it has a very devastating effect on a person. And I think it made me vulnerable to other abuse, particularly the abuse that came from conversion therapy, where they were promising to make me whole where I was broken um, as long as I repented of being gay. Hmm. 
so these were these women and the pastor were were these the people that connected you with with those conversion therapies and and got you involved or I'm not entirely sure what the process is or whether there's a sort of uniform process to these things. Um, no, you know, there's not a uniform process. It's um, there's all these back doors into these places. Yeah. Uh, and it's funny because my experience has been very traumatic and my response has been to do comedy. So it's very <laughs> rare that I actually talk about it straightforward. I use a lot of comedy, not to make light of it, but um, because it's so hot to handle. Sure. That, comedy is really very helpful but what happens is when somebody goes to a pastor and says that they're gay very often then the pastor does pastoral counseling and discipleship training believing that if you get enough of god inside of you if you get enough of the word inside of you it will displace all that bad stuff just get filled more with jesus and the spirit and it will drive out all that bad things and so that's how it started. And so it wasn't called conversion therapy. It wasn't called ex-gay ministry. It was called discipleship, discipleship training. And I was encouraged very much to read the Bible, to study the Bible, to memorize it. My pastor would give me Bible verses every week like they were prescriptions. Like, here, read oh, Romans chapter 1 and memorize it. And so by the <sighs> end of that summer, I had all of Romans memorized and a bunch of other scriptures and and the thought was that, um, you know, it just would naturally take its course. But when I graduated high school, I went to a Christian school. I went to Nyack College because I wanted to be a missionary. And that was where I found entry into the more established ex-gay movement. There was a program in New York City that was running, having a weekly support group. And I, as, you know, fresh-faced, 18-year-old, I went to my first meeting and began attend the, attending those weekly support meetings, which were designed in a way to give support you know, like kind of like drug addicts or alcoholics get together in AA. This was sort of like gay, gay. Where they were trying, <laughs> where they, you know, where people talked about their struggles for that week. And, and it wasn't always very effective, I have to say, because as a young person, um, I learned far too much information about where people were finding trouble. And I was like, oh, so what was the name of that park again? <laughs> it's very helpful always. Um, it was also very Pentecostal, which scared the snot out of me. There were people speaking in tongues and doing stuff that I had not experienced in my churches. And they believed that people were gay because of demon possession, which made me really, really uncomfortable. But I was so desperate, I ultimately submitted to one of their exorcisms. Oh, my Lord. So what was, I mean, you, you can feel free to skip this question. <laughs> um, what is something like that like? You know, in my quest to become heterosexual and masculine, I did crazy stuff. And definitely the exorcisms are the more extreme. And there were more than one exorcisms, it turns out. Um, they were all different, too. Some were really loud to the point where the police were called because... Uh, the neighbors thought someone was being beaten up. Uh, and in fact, I was, you know, because what they tell you is that you have this evil living inside of you. And it may have come because of abuse. It may have come because uh, your family opened some spiritual door or, you know, even something stupid like, you know, you had an African mask on the wall and somehow demons, you know, came into your life through this 
African mask. So it was all, you know, very scary and confusing for a young person. And they took on this position of being authorities. And that was a form of abuse, right? You have somebody with more power imposing their sexuality, their spirituality on me. And I, sure, I submitted to it, but I, you know, I really was not mature enough to know what was really going on there. And uh, at the end of the day, it just was really, really traumatic. Uh, And it also filled me with more false hopes. And you have to understand that this was in the height of the HIV AIDS crisis, which wasn't even called AIDS at first. It was called GRID, the gay-related immune deficiency. And at this time in New York City, there were thousands of men dying every month. And there was no cure in sight. I mean, it had a 100% fatality rate. So these ex-gay programs were just filled to the rafters with, with gay men, like kind of crowding onto Noah's Ark, hoping for some sort of way of avoiding this plague. So there was so much pressure and so much desperation going on that um, I think many of us were just so filled with fear that we were not thinking clearly. Hmm. I had I was unaware that that was the term before um, before it was called AIDS. In fact, in New York City, where it was like the epicenter, there was virtually no hospitals that would take AIDS patients. And there was a time that only one funeral parlor one funeral parlor would take victims of AIDS. Oh. All the other ones would turn people away. I mean, and there was a huge increase in hate crimes towards for, towards gays and lesbians, particularly gay men at this time. So, you know, it was such a scary time to be gay. And then I had also this other dread of if I don't repent, I'll go to hell for eternity. And it was so, you know, I mean, I was just a ball of fear and shame. So I could not think clearly at all. So, I mean, this is, as, as you're describing, it's a complete and total powder keg. Like, internally, <laughs> you got all these internal things that you're, that you're processing and then all these societal external things. <laughs> is there an event where the, the keg blows up? I mean, what, what did that look like for you? Well, I think the keg, I, I think I had a release valve on the keg <laughs> that sort of kept me honest in a way. It seemed like the more I attempted to to tighten things up, the more I felt sexual desires for other men. Like the exact opposite of what I wanted was happening. And I was living at this point in New York City. And let me just say, New York City is not the easiest place to not be gay if you're trying not to be gay. <laughs> there were just a lot of opportunities. And... <laughs> so for all the way that people were avoiding gay sex it was just everywhere and there would be these like i'd be like so intense i'd like be fasting and praying for three or four days uh, and and trying to keep my head together and then i would have some incident with some random guy and feel terrible about it and repent profusely and in a way i'm i'm now grateful for those incidences because they really kept me honest I mean, it kept me honest about, you know, like this obviously isn't working and I'm really unhappy and I'm desperate to connect with somebody and I would not allow myself to have a relationship. I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even let these guys tell me their names because I just like didn't want to know. Uh, And if they wanted to like, well, let's meet up again or let's start dating. I was like, no. Uh, And it was just like this, 
this one little moment and then I would run back to the church and repent and the, they loved they loved it when I would come back repenting. I mean, they never got tired of that. Um, eventually, the church only got tired of me when I stopped repenting and saying, you know what, I need to accept who I am. And that's when the doors closed. But as long as I was miserable about being gay, the doors were wide open. Hmm. Mm. Um... So before I dive into that part, um, what what was the what were the other parts of your life like at the time? I mean, you you mentioned you were at a Christian. Were you at a Christian college? Is that right? Yeah, I went to Nyack Christian College. Yeah. Okay, and then were there any other parts of your life that you were able to take some comfort in, or was it? And and I know that's a large question. Um, but what you've described so far is just such like heart wrenching sort of, uh, a, a very difficult moment in your life. Um, were there other things that, um, were you able to find what some people call like, uh, you know, they've found their tribe or, or what have you of, of people or, or other gr- groups that, that, um, that you were able to find a, find a break from this sort of turmoil. Well, in a way, I was always fortunate that I was able to make friends in lots of places. And my church was both a prison and a refuge. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was a refuge. I may, I may had some of my best friends were in the church and we would hang out together and, and, and we, you know, we just do what friends do. We were very open about our struggles. And so most of my friends at my church knew that I was, quote, struggling with homosexuality I was never considered gay, just someone struggling with it. And they would share their struggles. And so we had this sort of, this pack of folks that would hang out together around the same age. But, you know, as I, when you ask that question, it's a hard question because so much of my life was consumed with this ridiculous quest. And when you get involved with something like this, it's not just that they are trying to cut off your sexuality it's like almost every part of your personality is suspect. So I was uh, studying theater for a time because I wanted to be a missionary and I had wanted to be a, a, a medical missionary, but I realized after doing a summer mission trip in Ecuador that I am terrified at the sight of blood, which doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't work, really work yeah. well if you want to be a doctor. <laughs> so I thought, well, maybe I can study theater and I could like do, you know, pantomime and, you know, preach the gospel through theater. So I enrolled in a a program in, in New York, uh, and to my shock and horror, the theater department was infested with homosexuals. <laughs> and uh, after about a year and a half, I, you know, talking to my pastor, I realized, wow, if I don't want to be gay, I, I can't, I can't do theater. I, I just can't do it. And through the years and all of these programs, it was like more and more creativity was, was not permissible 
because it was dangerous. And in the one program I went to, a residential program where I stayed for two years, they they um, would not even let us keep journals because they didn't want any sort of creativity happening. And I think that wow. um, I think it was it was so hard. I you know, and I and I think that when I think about that now, it was just so like soul sucking. So, and I think that's why when I finally came out um, and worked through a lot of stuff, it became such a a resurrection for me because it wasn't just like I'm gay. It's like wow, I'm a whole human being at last. I can use my brain. I could use my creativity. And and since that moment, it's just been so exciting to have my brain back because it was pickled in a jar at some pastor's shelf for years. Uh, and I was not allowed to really access it. And I didn't allow myself to access it. I ceded responsibility over to the church. So you started these these programs and everything else when you were a teenager. How how many how many years went went on while you were still sort of pursuing this up until you you came out and you came out to your church and, and everything else and which led up to the rejection you mentioned. Well, one thing you can say about me is I'm persistent. <laughs> I uh, <laughs> because of all the people I know who have been caught up in this, I've been in, I was in it the longest of most people I know. I I often say in front of an audience, I spent 17 years and over $30,000 on three continents attempting and failing to de-gay myself. And that's a long time, 17 years. Um, I love this uh, TV show. I don't know if you've ever seen it, The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Oh, have yeah, that's that? great. That's well, so a great show. She, so she like she lived in a bunker a bunker for like 15 years, and then she finally comes out, and the whole world is different. Right, yeah. I am Kimmy Schmidt, okay? <laughs> it's like really based on my life story <laughs> because I was in this psychological bunker, and I was cut off from like pop culture and – you know, so it, it felt like that, you know, emerging out of the bunker. Wow. That's a, that's a long time to for someone as creative and, and has such an output as you do, because <laughs> researching you, you you put you put out a lot of stuff. You, you have a lot of content, a lot of a lot of really great things out there. So 17 years of, of feeling like you you weren't allowed to access that. <laughs> that's that's a long time, I'm sure, um, in retrospect. Um, if you don't mind, was there the church you were attending um, that you that you had referenced before that you were eventually excluded from when you came, when you uh, I know this is simplifying it, but language sort of falls apart sometimes when you came to terms with with who you are and you told your and you told your church. Um, that church did it have any sort of denominational affiliation or was it non denominational? Yeah, I've always been drawn to the non-denominational churches. So all the evangelical churches I attended were all non-denominational. Okay. So this, the last one that I was part of was also non-denominational. And what did that, what did that final sort of exclusion look like, and what were the results for you? I mean, how, what was the, what what was the, the outcome? Because that that exclusion, I mean, a. a that's something that's that's common with a lot of my guests. It's not under the same circumstances every time, but a lot of times there's something that becomes untenable for some sort of authority figure 
and then you get manipulated out or you're booted out or whatever it is. Um, and then I didn't go to church for over two years. You know, I'm still sort of like, um, so what, what was, what was that like for you? I mean, you were heavily into this. Um, you were, you were committed in more than one way to, to this sort of pursuit. Um, so that sort of action is devastating. What was, what was that for you? Well, such a crazy story. Um, (laughs) That's what the show is all about. (laughs) Crazy stories. (laughs) So I um, actually married a woman and we were married for five years and we were missionaries overseas and an African country and basically the whole marriage and everything imploded. Uh, and I think it was in some ways my dramatic attempt to eject myself from a situation that was just so unworkable and without able to go into lots of details, sure. <laughs> I, um, you know, I left Africa and, uh, and I thought, well, it was like a crossroads. And it was this moment where I could have just said, you know what? I can go off and just start a new life. You know, I could I could just accept myself and stop living this charade. And it was like the perfect moment to do that because everything sort of fell apart. And instead, that's when I doubled down my efforts, and that's when I decided to enroll in the Love and Action Ex-Gay program. And this is a residential program that was in Memphis, Tennessee at the time. It was considered the Cadillac of Ex-Gay programs. And I thought, maybe I just haven't been seriously serious enough. This was after 15 years of trying. And I thought, well, maybe I can win back everything I lost my wife, my church, my position as a missionary. I can win it all back. And, um, and so that's what I did. I spent the next two years of my life um, trying desperately to finally get this thing settled. And, and it was just such... Um, it was essential in a way. It was essential because I think I had to prove to myself that that this sort of change was not possible. And I think most other people in the world were like, stop trying already. But for me, it it just was this intensity. And thank God, I finally sat down with somebody who was a trained therapist. In all those years, I went to all of these Christian counselors and folks who had titles in front of their names, but hadn't had any actual training in regards to psychology or or even theology for much for you know for much of that and i sat down with this christian therapist and i was you know going through all this pain and he started digging into my past he was curious and he was the one who got me talking about the abuse and i had all of this angst about it and i said i know that's why i'm gay and because of this happened and i'm so angry about it he said wait a minute wait a minute wait a minute who told you that you're gay because you were abused I'm like, that's what everyone says. That's what makes you gay. He's like, no, that is not what makes you gay. Being abused is a completely different thing than being gay. These are two different situations. And boy, 
it was like a window was opened for the first time in 20 years and all this fresh air came in and my brain was able to to clear for a moment and uh and that was the pivotal moment that i began to understand that you know i could live a life free of this fear and free of this shame because i was so upset about the wrong thing i was upset about being gay when really i was struggling still years later with that trauma of the abuse and i felt hope for the first time and and that's the moment when i you know bumped up against churches that just couldn't handle it because i no longer was willing to debase myself i was no longer willing to to you know come like this beaten dog you know i need your help i'm a filthy beggar i i i chose to stand up and say you know what i'm going to get the help that i need and it's not to get delivered from being gay and that's when the door shut and mm. people who had been my dearest closest friends they um you know that's that was it up until that point they were willing to to attempt to maintain some sort of friendship or whatever but that was when the door closed hmm. um i think you mentioned in 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 our initial email that that you that at, at one point you were you were atheist as well is is that sort of in this <laughs> in this phase or um <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, I would totally understand, <laughs> given that you were, given that you were roundly rejected by everyone that called themselves Christians. Um. <laughs> yeah, it was so it was so complicated because for years I believed you couldn't be gay and Christian. So I was obviously trying to dump the gay part of me and hold on to Jesus. And so then I thought, oh wait, so if I'm gay, what what does that mean? I guess I can't be Christian anymore. And for a time, I just kind of thought, okay, well, that part of my life is over. I just have to lay that down. I, and I aspired to be an atheist. And I did a terrible job of it because <laughs> I, would, <laughs> I would like spontaneously pray and like, oh, Lord. I'm like, oh, wait, wait, no, I'm not, I'm not a Christian anymore. We're done with that. And, um, and I think, you know, and it's completely understandable. And I think it's very healthy often for some people to just make that break sure. and go in a different direction. Yeah. But for me, you know, I'm sort of wired for God. It just has all, you know, I've always been curious about God. And it had, you know, sure, there was all that gay stuff that made it confusing. But there has always been this genuine desire to to know about God or to know about that unseen world. And so I realized that I I can't live without God in my life. I don't have to go to those churches. I don't even necessarily have to be a Christian, but I need mm -hmm. to have some connection with, with God. And then I started meeting gay Christians and I realized, oh, I could, I could still be a Christian and I am still a Christian. Um, I'm now going to Quaker meetings. And so that makes a lot more sense for me, but that connection to the, that existential side is so critical and to cut off that part of me would be like cutting off the gay part of me. It's, it's part of who I am and it's yeah. part of my makeup and I need to, I need to be authentic about that. Yeah. I think, I, I think that's something that, that resonates with a lot of people. And that's something that I think a lot of people are sort of exploring. Like, yes, you might reject this sort of manifestation of religion or spirituality, but there is, if, if I think the comedian, keep the comedian Pete Holmes says sometimes that there's this hum in me. That's the way he describes it. 
which I think a lot of people just have. There's like a frequency that some people have in their brain <laughs> or in their spirit or whatever uh, that that you respond to, and um, and so a lot of times that you have to go through a period of uh, often of deciding whether you're going to maintain what you were brought up with or or, or all of that. But right, but that's yeah, that that totally makes sense that that you would return to that even even with the the sort of changes in belief that you had about yourself. And no surprise, I found a, a tradition that's completely different from both the Catholic and the evangelical tradition. I'm in this, this Quaker tradition where it's lots of silence and contemplation. Mm-hmm. There's, no, there's no music, there's no singing, which turns out to be a good thing because Quakers are so out of practice that when they do sing, it typically <laughs> is a bad idea. I just have to say. <laughs> I do kind of miss that in Protestant churches, you know, all yeah. the good singing and all, but... Uh, but I do adore that silence. Sure. And uh, yeah. I feel like, you know, I, you know, I calculated it once. Thousands and thousands of sermons I've heard in my life. I, I simply do not need to hear another sermon ever again <laughs> in my entire life. There's not a need for another sermon. Uh, but to sit silently and just listen and be still, wow, that is, that is a real gift to myself to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think... Uh... Silence amidst all the sort of noise we have these days is probably a really good thing. <laughs> um, one of the other things I'd, I'd like to to pick your brain about is um, you actually do tend to, in your current work um, and, and the things you've done in the past, you do tend to still talk with conservative Christians, correct? Like that's something that, that, you, that you've sort of taken on. A lot of LGBTQ or gender nonconforming folks really don't have the patience for that and and that's that's valid and understandable like you don't you shouldn't feel obligated to have to explain yourself all the time um but that's that's part of the role that you've taken on um so what are some of the things that that you try to pass on to people like that um and and sort of communicate with these folks that's an open question so um is there like a posture or do you try to posture you try to teach them or uh talk to them about language or communication styles like it's a very open question but what is it that that you try to focus on when you talk with those people i feel a lot of compassion for anti-gay evangelicals and i think i do because i know what that was like i mean i was the biggest homophobe in my life and i was trapped i was painted into this corner and there was no way out And I think there are a lot of really nice people who are trapped in that corner and they just are forbidden to even be nice to gay people the way they see the scripture. And that's sad to me that they're trapped in that place. And I think a lot of them would like to come out of that place. And so I feel like my role in part is to give them an on-ramp to acceptance. And my role is also to sort of trouble their their space that they're in Mm -hmm. by, by doing two things. One, by just being really vulnerable and sincere with them, telling them of my, my journey and my story, my testimony. I, you know, I can speak evangelical and I do, (laughs) I do, you know, it's a whole language. (laughs) Absolutely. And I share my testimony and I want to create a dilemma for them because if they really think the most compassionate thing to do is to tell a gay person, they must repent I then say, okay, well, this is what this is what that looks like. Let me show you. Is that what you really want people to do? 
So I insert this dilemma for them. And then the other thing I want to do is use the very word that they use to beat the snot out of us. I, I want to show them in that text, there are actually stories of gender and sexual minorities that are essential to these stories, that are celebrated. Stories that they have been reading for years and they haven't even noticed who's right in front of their eyes. And I don't do it to say, look, this person is queer. I do it just to say, hey, look, look at how this person is different. Now, you think about it, you do something with that. Uh, and I trust their ability to, to reason and their ability to be honest with the text. And I insert alternative readings that are supported by the text, knowing that that's what they need. And then I leave them with that and trusting that eventually they're going to do the right thing. Hmm. Is So is that where you generally start? Is that like a Bible story sort of? Um, totally. That's where you, where you start because, I mean, evangelicals are all about the Bible. So, I mean, it's a, it's a natural starting point. And stories are so important because we listen to stories with a different part of our brain mm-hmm. than we listen to a lecture or even a sermon. Uh, and when we listen to stories, we relax. And it's no surprise that most of the clobber passages that are used against LGBTQ people are not stories. They're <laughs> yeah. just... You know, a law or an offhanded remark here or there. Right. And, and so, like, there's no way you can do creative thinking with those. But, I, but there are amazing stories of people in the Bible who do not fit traditional gender roles and who do not fit tra- traditional sex. And they are so essential. And when you put those stories out there, it opens up a conversation where normally it would just sort of people get dug down in their heels of, you know, resistance. It's like suddenly like, huh, that's interesting. So can you actually share a couple of those? Because I, I watched a couple of your videos, and I think um, uh, you, you highlight a couple of Bible stories where, where that takes place. Um, so if you could actually share a couple of those, or, uh, or maybe just one example or, or whatever you feel like of, um, sure. of how, how that is presented in the Bible. Well, in fact, I'm going to have a DVD come out very soon of my play, Transfigurations, Transgressing Gender in the Bible. It's a performance lecture where I look at a bunch of these different stories, and I purposely designed it for evangelicals Hmm. so that it's pitched towards them, so that it's spoken in a language that they can understand. And there are, like, to me, it's good news. I mean, it's just such good news that there are these positive stories. So, for instance, in the Bible we all know that there are eunuchs. Most evangelicals will say, oh yeah, there are eunuchs. Oh, the Ethiopian eunuch, Acts chapter 8. Most evangelicals could not tell you what a eunuch looks like or sounds like. And to me, as an actor who's also a Bible scholar, this is important because if you've got a character and they're identified as being different, well, how are they different? Mm-hmm. Well, if someone's a eunuch, often this has happened when they were a child, when they were a little boy. And they were castrated as a little boy. Their testicles were removed. And as a result, they lost the ability to produce testosterone. So they never experience a male puberty. They retain high voices. They don't get the facial hair or the the body hair, the muscles that come with testosterone. They look and sound different from the men and women around them. So in the ancient world, in the Hebrew Bible, the Christian Bible, there were men, women, and eunuchs. 
these were these sexual gender others who could not have children, so they could not have family in the traditional sense, and family was so important, important, and they were undefinable. Like, is it a man? Is it a woman? We don't know. Something in the middle or something altogether different. And there are eunuchs all over the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament. The book of Esther, there are 12 eunuchs that are named in the book of Esther. And I know most evangelicals have read the book of Esther backwards and forwards. No one could name a single eunuch, but they are the ones that make everything happen. All of the hmm. non-eunuchs are stuck in their spaces, while the eunuchs have free access in and out of the palace, into the women's quarters, the men's quarters. It's the eunuchs that make everything happen. God is never once mentioned in the 11 chapters of Esther, but these 12 eunuchs make everything happen. They find Esther. They give her beauty treatments and etiquette lessons. They tell her what to bring into the king when it's her time to go see the king. They're sending all the messages back and forth. Um, when Esther sets up a lunch to have with the king to expose Haman's evil plot, it's the eunuchs who do all of that work. And we don't even notice them at all. And one of my favorite eunuchs is an Ethiopian eunuch, not the one in Acts chapter 8, but the one in Jeremiah chapter 38, that again, most people overlook. So Jeremiah is the prophet with a message of gloom and doom, which unfortunately is what prophets do. <laughs> and nobody liked his message. And they're like, screw you, Jeremiah. And his enemies arrest him. And uh, they capture him and they drag him into the palace and they drop him into a cistern or a well, a dry well. And the king at the time is actually very sympathetic towards Jeremiah, but he doesn't have any real power. Well, enter Ebed Melech, a character that virtually no one has ever heard of, but to me is one of the most extraordinary Bible characters. Ebed Melech is from Cush. He's a Cushite, which is modern day Ethiopia, Eritrea. So he's an African, a foreigner in the court of Judah. He's also a eunuch. So he doesn't have a family. It's hard to tell if he's male or female. He's this other class. And this outsider goes to the king and says, we have to do something. We need to save Jeremiah. And the king's like, I, you know, I really can't. But, you know, take some fighting men, see what you can do. So Ebed Melech organizes a special ops midnight raid to Navy SEAL <laughs> Jeremiah out of the palace. And he thinks of everything. Like he gets rope obviously, to bring up the old man prophet, but he also brings with him old rags. And he throws these old rags down and he says to the prophet, now, when you come up, when we pull you up, put these rags under your arms so that the rope won't cut you or burn your skin. And I think, what kind of person is so thorough and so thoughtful that he thinks of everything, and so in this story, you have a black African surgically altered gender variant servant and savior. And I think of the other Ethiopian eunuch who I have heard so many sermons about this Ethiopian eunuch. And I have to say every sermon, they're either pointing us to Philip and like Philip, we too should be good evangelists, or they're pointing us to Jesus, who's not even in the story, but his reference and saying, Jesus is this suffering servant who suffered and died for our sins. But people are completely overlooking that the writer of Acts went out of their way to say, this is a story about a eunuch. This is the ultimate outsider in this culture. Sure, they were a convert to Judaism, but they're from Africa. They're, they go to the temple, which is highly gendered, men there, women there. Where do they go? 
Everybody has family. They have no family. They're literate, which is weird. Most people in the ancient world weren't. Most of Jesus' disciples couldn't even read and write. And this person has a scroll of the prophet Isaiah and is so curious over the identity of the person writing it, which is such a strange thing. And he asked, you know, Philip, who is the prophet speaking of, himself or somebody else? Now think about it. This is somebody who has a boy was probably taken from his home either during a war or he was sold as a slave. He was held down against his will. He was cut and and surgery was done on him and his genitals were removed, experienced great pain, but then he grew up and was different from the other boys. And he's reading this passage and it says, like a sheep before the shears is silent, like a lamb before the slaughter, he too opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can speak of his offspring? For his life was cut off. And if you are a eunuch reading that passage, I would imagine that you're looking at a mirror and wondering, is this the story of a eunuch? Because it sure sounds like my experience. And this person becomes the first convert to Christianity that gets baptized is the first recorded baptism. So the first baptism of the early church is of this black African, surgically altered, gender variant, rich, literate, civil servant. I mean, talk about intersection of identities and differences. If that person walked into most churches in America today, most white churches in particular, they would not find a seat at the table. Wow. That is an incredible interpretation of that story. (laughs) I mean, that is just, that's, <laughs> I'm going to be thinking about that for a while. <laughs> um, I, yeah, <laughs> sorry. I'm not sure, I'm not sure how to uh, segue from that <laughs> to my, uh, to my, to my next questions. <laughs> um, be- well, yeah, I think that our society has been soaked in America with the Bible Um, but we, you know, so I, I don't think we can run away from the Bible. So many people look to the Bible for inspiration, for guidance. I mean, we have literally foreign policy that is based on certain readings of the book of revelation. Okay. We cannot escape the Bible, Yes, (laughs) but I think we can approach it with some fresh new eyes, uh, to, to help deescalate the violence towards people. And that is the problem. The Bible has been used as a weapon of destruction towards lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender people. It gives people moral authority to be bullies. And that is a complete, absolute, gross distortion of how someone should use a sacred text. And that, to me, is an abomination. And in part, that's why I do the work that I do to to give people a way out of that mess. Mm-hmm. What are the what are the sort of uh, venues in which you you share these stories? Because I'm curious about that as well. Well, I will go. I'm a mercenary. I will go anywhere and everywhere <laughs> to tell these stories. And it's strange. These stories that I've just told you, I have told in the most unlikely places. So, like the um, the Humanist Society, the LGBTQ Humanist Society in London. So these are queer atheists. They were wanted me to do an evening of Bible stories for them. I was like, okay. <laughs> Similarly, Eastern Mennonite University, which is a conservative Christian college, 
Um, I was one of, I think I was the first paid speaker to a gay speaker to speak on their campus. And I shared these stories. Uh, I will, anywhere I go, I make it clear to my hosts that are hosting my performances. If you know evangelicals that I could meet with, it could even be a little kind of off the grid meeting in somebody's home. We don't have to announce it. I really want to tell them some good news. And so I've talked to chaplains in South Carolina. I've talked to Seventh-day Adventist ministers in Scotland. I've talked to Catholic priests in Malta. I mean, wherever. And a lot of these, you know, sometimes there are public events and other times there are these private events that never, ever get recorded. And and that's the other reason why I put a lot of stuff on YouTube. Because mm-hmm. there's a lot of people who will never come to me face-to-face. And that's why I created the DVD because I want, I want it to get into people's lives and that they can experience it on their own um and 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 really have a new experience with the with the text yeah yeah I, I, that's that's fascinating and i, I think re- um it's an it's a it's a very diverse way that that you do this and i think that's important just because the sort of bubbles that we all sort of inhabit um can be difficult it it can be difficult to to reach across in a lot of ways. And so that's very interesting. I'm still a missionary, <laughs> technically. <laughs> Mama, take this badge off for me. I can't use it anymore It's getting dark, much too dark to see Feel I'm knocking on heaven's door Knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door Um, I'm going to pivot a little bit away from away from uh, those issues, uh, and I think that um, they may get, they may come back um, through our conversation. But we, uh, but you're also a climate activist. Um, what sort of what led you to that topic, and what what led you to those um, to climate change in general? I mean, that's that's a big topic and very very different. Um, one might think that they're they're not connected to. Uh, uh, gender and sexuality and spirituality. <laughs> Most people who know me are still totally confused that I'm doing work around climate change because there's nothing in my background that would indicate that I was an environmentalist or concerned about stewardship or any of these things. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're very confused. And, you know, like, and I think, you know, just like many, you know, evangelicals, it's just my worldview is not an environmental one, not because I'm an an environment uh, an evangelical now but you know there's it's just the way my brain works it's i've never been part of an environmental organization i've never been moved by polar bears <laughs> in any significant way 
<laughs> you know, it's just not my jam. I'm into human rights. I'm into social justice and I'm into art. And so there's nothing that would indicate that I'd be interested in this. But yet I am very concerned about climate change. And what happened for me was I found a foothold with this issue. And that is, I think, one of the hardest things with climate change because it's so huge. It's like, where do we start? Yeah. But I began to see things that I already care about. So globally, climate change affects women more than it affects men. It affects people of color more than it affects white people. And it affects the poor and the working class more than middle class and upper class. So basically, it seems that it operates as if it's sexist, racist, classist, things that I really (laughs) am concerned about. And Mm -hmm. it's not that climate change is that way. It's the way the world is set up, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and, And how these effects happen. So when I began to see that, oh, human rights is a part of climate change. I understand that. I care about that. And people are treated unfairly. I know about that. And it kind of reminds me when I was an evangelical in the white evangelical church, I was a man in a church that favored and honored male leadership. But as a gay guy or someone struggling with homosexuality, I was a feminized man so that I was blocked access to many of the spaces that men traditionally went to. And I bumped up against the stained glass ceiling that the women were dealing with. Mm. And that was shocking to me because as a white man in America, you get this message like every door is open to you. No door is shut to you. And when I experienced that, it was shocking. Like, what? There's a door closed to me? And that partly fueled my desire to become straight. And then when I came out gay... I was um, under the assumption that the LGBT community was the most inclusive and welcoming of all communities on the planet. And I was shocked to discover among the white gay men I was hanging out with that they were racist and they didn't like women and they didn't like trans people. And I thought, well, this is insane. We're all in the same boat together. Why are we doing this to each other? And that's how climate change operates. We're all in the same boat together. We're just not all on the same deck. Hmm. And some people are affected far more than others. And as a Christian, as a person who cares about human rights, that moves me. And I've been getting lots of inspiration around climate change by looking at our ancestors in the um, the AIDS struggle. I've been studying a lot about what they did. And it's kind of amazing how it's set up in the same way. You had a government that refused to do anything, people who were terrified and and, and some people suffering more than others. But I also learned that, you know, with AIDS, everyone who had it suffered. It had a 100% fatality rate, but they didn't suffer equally. Some people suffered more than others based on their race, their access to health care, their class. It was disproportionate in that way. And I think there's so many issues like that in the world. And with climate change, I definitely see that. I mean, we're all threatened by climate change there's no question but some far more than others and i think missionaries in parts of africa and central america they're seeing it because these mission fields that they've been working on for decades suddenly they're experiencing extreme weather events that they had never seen before and -hmm. their work's being undone and so it's weird it's it's an issue that is very much like talking about gay issues back in the 90s because nobody wanted to hear about it and people would freak out. 
And so I'm using some of the very same tools that I use with evangelicals around gay issues. I'm using the same tools of using storytelling and comedy to help people relax enough to discover that they have a role on this new planet and that they're desperately needed. Mm-hmm. Um, well, even the story of Joseph in Genesis, which is an interesting climate story mm-hmm. because he is in exile in Egypt. He's stuck in prison. It seems like he's going nowhere in his life. And suddenly Pharaoh has these weird dreams about cows, <laughs> fat cows and skinny cows. And they haul up Joseph because he can interpret dreams. And he analyzes this data and he predicts climate change. He says, <laughs> we're going to have seven years of amazing weather. Everything's going to grow, followed by seven years of drought and famine. So he predicts this, and then he comes up with an adaptation plan. Well, since this is happening, we need to prepare. He says, so during those good years, let's grow as much as possible, store it in our famous grain silo so there's food for the people. And it happened exactly that way. In fact, it was during the drought years that he got reunited with his family because they were suffering from this drought, and they heard there was food in Egypt, and they came as climate migrants to Egypt, looking for food. And this is a situation we're experiencing in the world today. You have a huge drought in Central America that is fueling migration. And we have all this tension at our borders because of immigration. The Syrian conflict, one of the factors that led to it was a huge drought that displaced people from the rural regions into the cities. And there's this political unrest. It's not the only thing that was happening there, but what climate change does, it magnifies these existing conditions. Mm-hmm. And so we, we see that. And you know we see um, uh, so many stories in the Bible about wells and water. And, um, and one of the big features with climate change is access to water, droughts and floods. And those are things that we know a lot about from the Bible. Mm-hmm. And so are you, are you targeting evangelicals again? Uh, are you with, with those sorts of, with those sorts of stories or are you, is the audience larger in, in this type of type of work that you're doing? The audience is larger. With climate, people listen to people with whom they identify. And in a way, there's lots of groups for me. So there's Quakers that are listening to me. There are LGBTQ people that are listening to me. Evangelicals, although I'm not an evangelical anymore, I speak that language and I can definitely speak to that crowd. Mm. And I think there's a lot of, you know, Americans that I need to talk to because we are in a strange position in that we are the country that's holding the rest of the world back. Yes, absolutely. You know, and it's often put on us like as individuals that we should, you know, recycle and take shorter showers. And I call bullshit on that. (laughs) I mean, yes, we have a responsibility. But um, as Americans, we're often told that, like, look at what one person can do. Look at the difference you can make. And we have to be honest about this and say, no, we need to change the way our government works. Yeah. We need to change policy. And that takes collective action. That takes people getting together. And as citizens, we have a responsibility to demand that our government address climate change. We can't do this out of our homes. It would be like telling somebody during you know the colonial days and slavery days that someone who cared about ending slavery saying, well, if you just don't buy products made by slaves, you're going to bring this whole system down. Like, no, that's ridiculous. <laughs> no, you have to really challenge that system. You had to overturn that system. And we're looking at the same scale um, and even larger because it's global what's happening here 
Um, mm-hmm. We have to change the way we do business. And part of that, part of the difficulty, I think, in communicating that to people is that policy is in <laughs> a really abstract thing. You know, um, you 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 talk about climate change and and people only see the weather where they are. Um, that's the only thing they might be aware of. And when you talk about policy, um, you know, the Paris Accords is something that happened, and I don't like Paris to begin with. And so, um, so that's that's something that is really hard to make, I think, sort of concrete. I absolutely agree with you. I'm, <laughs> I'm in. I'm I'm not uh, disagreeing uh, with you at all. Um, I think it's essential, um, and it. I think we can't necessarily just pin all our hopes on Elon Musk, like, like solving everything for us. Um, though I wouldn't mind if he did. <laughs> yeah, it would be nice. It'd be nice if someone invented some amazing magical thing. But I think, I think you're right in that people aren't prepared to talk about policy yet. They, that's jumping ahead. That's why I talk far more about pets than policy, because people are much more concerned about their pets. And so often when I'm in with a group hmm. of people, I just start asking them questions about their pets. Tell me a story about your pet. And we get talking. And then I raise weird questions like, huh, I wonder how climate change is going to affect pets and pet ownership. And then we begin to talk about that. Hmm.